and welcome back to the fifth and final episode of MedEd Soundbites, a podcast series brought to you by the SAM Education Committee. My name is Julie Taunt, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Penn State. I am here today with my co-hosts, Dr. Dinah Wallen and Dr. Ryan Pedigo. Hello, everyone. You may recall me from such MedEd Soundbite sessions as episodes one and three. Hopefully, you're not too tired of me yet. I'm an associate clinical professor of emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine at UC San Francisco, San Francisco General Hospital, where I'm also the residency director of didactics. Hello, I'm Ryan Pedigo. I'm an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the residency program director at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. We have with us today our guest, Dr. Leonardo Eliaga, a medical education fellow at Stanford University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yes, I'm a med ed fellow at Stanford. I did my residency training at UC Davis. And before that, I was a neurosurgery resident at UCLA for about four years before switching to EM. And despite that long, long training road, I'm grateful for having the wide variety of training experiences that have helped me be a better educator in the end. As a reminder to our listeners, the MedEd Soundbites podcast was developed by the SAM Education Committee. The purpose of this podcast is to be a practical discussion on how our listeners could take advantage of the unique learning environment of the emergency department, as well as their clinical skills to become great bedside teachers. Our podcast references Dr. Rob Rogers' book, Practical Teaching in Emergency Medicine, edited by Alma Matu, Michael Winters, Joseph Martinez, and Terrence Mulligan. If you want to read or follow along, and relevant chapters are included in the show notes. Great. Now that we have introduced ourselves in the podcast, let's get into our episode, which will be taking a deep dive into building an effective medical education toolkit for on-shift teaching in the emergency department. Dr. Aliaga, when you hear of discussions of on-shift toolkits for teaching, what do you think about and where do you suggest that our listeners start? So before we talk about toolkits, I would love to reframe the idea of teaching. It's tempting to think that we can just drag and drop info into our learners' minds by simply telling them things. But the truth is, it just doesn't work like that. Instead, a learner builds their own unique mental model for the knowledge we want them to gain. And so rather than teaching, I almost always think of it as facilitating learning. And I think it's critical to get this right, because now our conversation becomes about toolkits for helping the learner build their own mental models for the stuff we encounter on shift. And a practical starting point for clinician educators is to think about how you can get the learner to arrive at the info themselves rather than just giving it to them. And it's totally okay for learners to struggle as they try to arrive at the info themselves. In fact, some amount of struggle can be a great thing. By simply telling them the info, you absolve them of that need to struggle. And what ends up happening is you rob them of the benefits they would have gotten from that struggle. And when I think of my most formative and memorable experiences, personal experiences as a trainee, it was with the attendings who did that for me. Facilitating learning. Yes, I love that. So thinking of this, of helping learners build their own resource toolkit, there's a seemingly endless amount of resources available out there. Dr. Aliaga, do you have an approach to ensure that learners as well as faculty are using resources that actually provide up-to-date evidence-based medical information? Yeah, so, so you hint at two issues here. One is how to consume all this info, and the other is how do you know if it's any good? Regarding the first issue, there are a ton of resources out there, right? I mean, it kind of still feels like drinking from a fire hose. One guiding principle is to keep it simple, meaning you should have a simple system that automates how you get this info. 
three kinds of resources to consider are websites, podcasts, and PubMed literature, just like the literature literature. And you can get a few apps that will help funnel information to you. That's the key, that they just help funnel the info to you. A news aggregator app like Feedly can feed you <laughs> updates on websites and blogs you choose to follow. I mean, and you're probably already using a podcast app to round up your favorite EM podcasts. And if you're not, you should. Regarding the literature, apps like Read by QXMD and Prime PubMed can feed you new literature based on your preferences and search terms. But how do you know who to follow? Like which websites, which podcasts, how do you even, where do you start? Part of that will be based on your interests and the gaps you think you need to fill. Rebel EM is a great site overall and a good starting point. One of their posts by Dr. Jenny Beck-Esme has a list of widely used EM websites organized by subject matter like airway, ECGs, critical care, and education, et cetera. I think it's a great place to start, and we can totally include a link to that in the show notes. And you'll need to spend a little bit of time initially looking through some of these websites to decide what's going to be useful to you. I, I know that might sound like a drag, but that initial time investment is totally worthwhile and makes you a better consumer of this info. So that second issue, how do you know if these website and podcast resources are any good? I wish there was an easy answer, but the truth is there is no easy answer. There's a lot of great work going into creating objective tools for evaluating these resources, but they're not perfect yet, and you still need to use your judgment. Remember, you are still the guide for your learner. You, the clinician educator, have amassed a wealth of clinical experience and pattern recognition that is much greater than your trainee. And you will use that experience to create a gestalt impression of the quality of these resources. Like, do they ring true for you? That said, I think you also have to continually improve and refine your gestalt. None of us is Yoda yet, and we all have to be willing to be wrong sometimes because that's how we learn. Technology has certainly become part of our everyday lives in the emergency department, including the use of technology for on-shift teaching. The book emphasizes how the role of the educator remains the most important regarding teaching and discusses how posing the relevant question and holding a subsequent debrief on the topic are vital to ensure the learner retains the intended information and skills. How do you recommend educators best utilize technology such as apps, websites, medical calculators, etc., while still being actively engaged in how the content is being delivered and utilized by the learners? That's a great question. And and it makes me think of this phrase you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. We have so much knowledge that we want to give our learners, but sometimes I'm not sure how much they want to receive. Like sometimes it's a really busy shift and you're not sure how much is actually sticking. So the trick is you have to make the horse thirsty. It's not enough just to provide the water. So how do you make the horse thirsty? You have to help them see their own knowledge gaps. In three quick, easy steps. Step one, identify your learner's knowledge gaps. Step two, use the right kinds of questions so that the learner realizes their knowledge gaps, like they see them for themselves. And step three, provide clues as to how they can address those knowledge gaps using websites, apps, or whatever re other resources you have. It's like you have a discussion with your learner, and then you pose some questions that would lead them to the answer. When they give an incorrect or an incomplete answer, you, you let them know it's incomplete, but don't give them the answer or don't give it to them just yet. In fact, you might even tell them that you won't give them the answer. And then something interesting happens. Oftentimes, they like they really, really want to know the answer. It's like they're demanding you to tell them. 
It's kind of amazing when it works. It's almost like you can see the thirst in their eyes when they're demanding to, for you to tell them. And at this point, that's when you can plug in your resources. Now, I, I totally realize that takes trust, meaning you need to have some relationship already established with your learner. And, and the stronger the relationship, the greater you can push your learner's envelope. That's all really, really insightful. And I, I think this has been a great discussion so far on how to begin crafting an effective toolkit for your on-shift teaching. You know, you had mentioned using resources. One thing is, you know, we're using quite a bit of technology. And so you had mentioned a few different things you use, but what would you say are the biggest on-ship medical applications that you use? And also what are your top go-to print resources, pocket references, books, articles? So to start, I know it's not an app, but a great resource is Ruben Strayer's screencast titled, How to Think Like an Emergency Physician. I often use this with sub-eyes and early interns, and it's absolutely fantastic. I'll give the trainee a brief gist of the talk and uh, like what it's about, and then write some examples using Dr. Strayer's, what he calls the wheel of danger, which is just another way of saying an EM-specific differential, like a list of differential diagnoses. And then with subsequent patients, I'll have the trainee write out a relevant wheel of danger so that they start to build the habit of thinking like an emergency physician. On a separate note regarding apps, I find that apps oftentimes only tend to walk the learner through a worked example, and they don't allow the learner to try and flex their interpretation muscles. Sublux is a nice radiology app that walks you through various normal x-rays and shows you some x-ray examples of injuries. But the problem is it already tells you the injury pattern before you even see the x-ray, meaning you never even get to try interpreting it yourself. And there is no substitute for the real-world experience of trying to interpret something yourself, whether it's an x-ray, an ECG, blood gas, or like a whole clinical case. So another thing I do is I keep a list of patients in my EMR with examples of useful radiology studies. I know, it's, again, I know it's not an app per se, but this comes in super handy for pulling up real examples of particular imaging findings. And then again, the key is to not immediately tell the trainer the answer and don't point out the interesting radiology finding, but give them a brief clinical vignette and let them try to interpret the study. And this is something we can all do with our EMO, with our own EMRs start your own collection of interesting and educational radiology studies. For ECGs, the website ECG Wave Maven has a huge collection of ECGs. I mean, I mean like 500 ECGs. And you can look at them by the diagnosis, like the answer is shown on the screen if you're searching for a specific example. Or you can have the diagnosis hidden, like if you want to use it as a question for your trainee. I mean, like everyone else, I also use Wiki and MDCalc. I mean, a lot of people use that. But again, the key, I think, is to use these in a way that facilitates the learner building their own unique mental model rather than just kind of force feeding it to them. Those are some really great resources for our listeners. Thank you. We will include those as well as other references we as the Education Committee have found helpful for our listeners to check out related to evidence-based medicine, medical images, ECG interpretation, drugs and talks, and special population in the show notes. I cannot wait to check all of these out. So let's think about our learners a little bit. So as you just mentioned, Dr. Aliaga, and as we've discussed in prior episodes, an effective on-shift teacher must first gauge an individual learner's educational background and baseline knowledge, and then adjust their teaching accordingly. So once a clinically relevant question is identified while on shift, our learner is thirsty, 
How do we suggest that educators guide learners of various backgrounds to independently find those answers to the question and determine the subsequent application of patient care? I mean, a psych intern and an emergency medicine fourth year resident clearly are starting out from different places, both clinically in the ED, but also their knowledge of where to find accurate EM relevant info. And it can be challenging for me, at least, to pivot and adjust my teaching on the fly. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> and, and challenging, I think, for all of us to, to figure out a way to deal with that wide gamut of, of where learners start from. I would think a key phrase I have in my mind is start with why, meaning you have to find out why the learners said what they said or did what they did. Seeing a patient and trying to come up with a plan, like when they present a patient to you and tell you their plan, that's like trying to solve a problem. And in order to solve that problem, learners have to access and use their mental schema for how they think that problem works. You, as the clinician educator, need them to reveal their mental schema and how they used it. Why did they arrive at the plan they arrived at? And sometimes it's as simple as asking them why, like why they're ordering a particular test or study. For example, let's say a young, healthy patient with a history of kidney stones comes in with a super classic presentation of their typical renal colic from a ureteral stone, and your trainee wants to get a CT out and pelvis with contrast. Rather than just telling them that the CT may not be necessary in this case, it's helpful to probe why they want to get that CT, like what things were running through their head that led to that decision. And so when they reveal their mental schema, you can then share your own mental schema and then compare and contrast the two. After a trainee presents a patient, I'll often tell them something like, like this. I'll say, so things that are running through my mind when I hear this story are dot, 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 and then I tell them whatever I tell them. And I do this in order to signpost that I'm talking out loud about my own mental schema for how I might approach the problem. When there are differences between their plan and my plan, we can talk about the underlying reasons for why we arrived at those different answers. And this will help you understand like if they're missing basic knowledge or if they have the knowledge, but they don't know how to make sense of it or apply it. Going back to that example with the ureteral stone, the trainee might be ordering a CT because that's what they've seen others do and they don't understand how the CT can help or what it can add. Or, or maybe it's they ordered it because they were worried about certain things like hydronephrosis or aortic dissection, but they don't have a framework for triaging those concerns. And so figuring that out, like, is it, is it something really basic that they're missing or is it some advanced nuanced thing that they're, that they're misinterpreting? That'll help you figure out how to point, where to point them and how to point them. So then depending on how things, how busy things are and how well you know the trainee, you can guide them in a variety of ways ranging from pointing them in the right direction to just flat out giving them the answer. You can even describe their knowledge gap by saying something like, it sounds like it'd be helpful to have a framework for when to get imaging and renal colic. And they might be like, yeah, it would be helpful. And from there, they could either Google it themselves. If they don't have any luck, you could tell them to search for the 2019 consensus paper from EM Radiology and Urology that, that talks about this. Or maybe even to make it easier for them, you could tell them to listen to the eight-minute Rebel EM podcast episode on imaging and renal colic that sums it all up for them. Yeah, it's so important to give them, you know, something usable and also giving them feedback because this is really important part of effective on-shift teaching. And we've covered feedback and prior episodes, but, you know, Dr. Aliaga, I want your perspective. How do you suggest our listeners incorporate feedback into their on-shift teaching toolkits to make them better? Feedback, uh, the F word. We all know that giving feedback can sometimes be difficult. And I, I try to preempt some of those difficulties at the beginning of a shift with one of two tools. 
The first tool is talking about the zone of proximal development, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. The second tool is using a coach versus judge sports analogy. So about that first tool. The zone of proximal development is a concept from educational psychology, and it's basically just a fancy pants way of saying that each learner needs to find their sweet spot of difficulty. For any given learner, there are things that they can do very easily and things that they can't do at all because they're way too hard. But in between those extremes, there's a middle ground called the zone of proximal development. And it's where things are a little difficult for the learner, like they get harder, but they can still do them with some help and guidance. And this is where real growth happens. It also leads to a lot of rich feedback. It's kind of like weightlifting. That's another analogy where you, you need to find the right amount of weight to build muscle. If it's too heavy, you can't lift it at all. If it's way too light, you're not going to build much muscle. So at the start of a shift, I'll explain this to the trainee and I'll tell them we need to find their zone of proximal development. I'll tell them that we need to find the right amount of weight so that things are a little difficult. And when we do, they might make mistakes, which is totally okay. They might get feedback that gets them thinking about how to do things a little bit better next time. And I tell them that. I tell them it's okay to make mistakes. I tell them that if they haven't made any mistakes and gotten that kind of feedback, then we haven't spent enough time in their zone of proximal development. And I also tell them that in some way, I, I have failed them as, as an attending or as a guide or as a mentor because I have not found a way to put them into their zone of proximal development. So here's the second tool. In high-level competitive sports, an athlete usually has a coach who gives performance feedback in order to make the athlete better. And sometimes that coach can be very hard on the athlete, but it comes from a place of love so that the athlete can be their best on game day for the judges. Now here, the coach is not the same person as the judge. And the issue in medical training is that the attending sometimes is both coach and judge. So at the beginning of a shift, I'll ask the learner if I can just be the coach today. I'll tell them I want to be just the coach so that together we can make them a better athlete for game day. And what is game day? Well, it could be when they work with other attendings, but it's really more for when they have no attending or other safety net for when they are on their own. And with both of these tools, my hope is to set the expectation that the trainee will get feedback throughout the shift, not just at the end, but throughout the shift that is focused on how to improve, not just on whether they are good or bad. Another quick tool for incorporating feedback is that I've seen and like as a shift card. It's like an index card where you jot down feedback thoughts in real time and then give the trainee the card at the end of the shift. But an alternative to this, like a 21st century alternative, is a shift Google Doc where you share the Google Doc with the trainee. And you can even have one for each resident you work with, kind of like a running document of where you date each shift. And then you can see how things may have progressed or what your last interaction was like or things that the trainee wanted to work on. Stuff like that. Oh my gosh, yes. I do find that my feedback is so much more meaningful if I write it within 24 hours of the shift. And so I love that suggestion. And I've never tried the Google Doc idea, but it's awesome. Especially when one has a series of shifts in a row with one particular trainee and one may be feeling a bit maxed out on their constructive feedback or specific teaching points. Dr. Aliaga, Thank you for thoroughly blowing my mind with this and all of your other suggestions. Your approach to on-shift learning is so refreshing. I cannot wait to try some of these strategies out. And I love the idea of making learner thirsty and making them invested in the information. One thing interesting, because we get a lot of off-service learners that I might add is that, you know, sometimes identifying their knowledge gap may or may not be enough to make them thirsty. And so one additional technique you might need to add 
um, is really trying to find the learner relevance in that case. So adult learners, I often think of them as thinking like, what's in it for me, right? So like, why am I here? And that can be a great way to spark that thirst also. Sometimes it's hard to find learner relevance. Like if you have an off-service orthopedics intern evaluating a patient with first trimester vaginal bleeding, but there's often some relevance that you can find that will make the learner invested in gaining that knowledge uh, or improving that practice. And, and I think it's just so important and can't be underscored enough how effective it is. If you make that learner thirsty, um, it makes them invested in that information and, and really, really want to change. So I think that's, that's an awesome point that uh, Dr. Aliaga brought up. Yeah, and totally agree. And I, I completely agree with that last part you added, the what's in it for me, so, so important. Well, this has been a really awesome and super informative discussion. We have definitely learned so much here today. And I agree with everyone else. I can't wait to go and look up these resources and try these out on my next shift. So to recap, we might change up the whole concept of teaching to that of facilitated learning. Rather than downloading all the info we know to our learners, we set up learners to be able to self-direct their own education and develop their unique mental model for learning. Yeah, that's so great. And to do this, an effective educator, you know, you can put in a lot of the time up front, handpicking the resources that kind of speak to you that you find particularly useful for your practice, for the variety of learning opportunities that present themselves on shift in the emergency department. And, and part of this is, you know, exactly like Julie just said about kind of setting up to self-direct their own education. Part of the things that, that we're instilling in these learners is self-directed learning because ultimately they're not going to have this coach, right? They're going to finish residency and they're going to practice on their own. But these things you do in the emergency department that spark that um, drive to learn and give them tools to use these resources on shift, they're going to take that with them and they're going to improve even after they've left your residency program. So, you know, you kind of get a benefit today, but you also get a benefit later when they're able to incorporate that into their future practice. So I think that's great. And just a reminder, listeners, we will have a list of these resources in the show notes at the end of our podcast. But just to recap on some of those that were mentioned were Rebel EM, specifically their posts of other resources, the Sublux app, ECG Wave Maven, Wiki EM. And most importantly, which I think is really great to think about, is the educator's own curated files of cases, images, and ECGs. I love that last one. Many EMRs, including Epic, to which I have no financial tie, unfortunately, but do use at both of my sites, make it really easy to securely store patient cases for future discussion. Yeah, and if that seems too daunting to basically make your entire like library on your own, you can also crowdsource it. So at our institution, we have an ECG of the month competition where if you have an interesting ECG, you can download the ECG from the chart, send it in de-identified, and once a month we pick like the best ECG and you get a gift card. So the residents basically are always on the lookout for that you know, kind of rare ECG or really instructive classic presentation of a certain condition on an ECG. And that way you have an entire department who's curating these resources for you and is accessible for everyone. And it might even be new to you, right? You may not have seen this hyperkalemia ECG that someone submitted last week. And so that's something you may consider if you want to kind of crowdsource in your department. And, you know, another key part, I think that really resonated with all of us is how important feedback is, you know, Dr. Aliaga mentions it as the F word. Yes. And in sort of a reverse chronological order, taking time at the start of the shift to identify the learner's growth zone or zone of proximal development for us med ed nerds, 
Then gently nudging throughout the shift to keep the learner outside of their comfort zone and providing guidance and feedback along the way. As an athlete, I really resonated with that metaphor of the attending as the coach, not the referee, not the judge, but the coach. And as on-shift educators, that's what we are. We want each member of our team to reach their full potential, helping each person to do even better than their personal best to get the win, right? We're on the same side. Definitely. That really is a great metaphor. As educators, we're all here to cheer on, motivate, and support learners as they become part of the emergency medicine team. Well, that wraps up the fifth and final episode of MedEd Soundbites. Huge thanks to the SAEM Education Committee for their support throughout, and thanks to Dr. Ryan Pedigo and Dr. Dinah Wallen for joining me as co-hosts today. Thanks so much, and of course, huge thanks to you, Dr. Tan, for leading the session, and to Dr. Leo Aliaga for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely loved this conversation. We loved having you. So listeners, if you were crushed, disappointed, surprised, or anything other than relieved to hear that this will be our last post, please make sure to leave us some comments, feedback, and suggestions for the future. You can leave comments if you access this episode on SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you feel better equipped to facilitate the crap out of learning on future shifts in the ED. For the last time, this is Drs. Dinah Wallen, Julie Taunt, and Ryan Pedigo sounding off. Bye. Bye. Bye.